Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we um, thank you for your word and for the beautiful reality of what your son is. The power that he holds, the darkness that causes to flee before him, and the way in which he can forgive sins and call a lame man to walk. We pray today that you'd give us a, a holy sobriety today, Jesus, as we consider you. There would be a sense within our hearts that we know you not only as a gracious and kind and loving Savior, but we'd also see you as the one who has authority and power, one who is to be feared, and the one who strikes awe and wonder in the hearts of people when they encountered you. So Lord, be honored today by our time in your word, and give us the clear sense of what this text is all about. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I have a pretty generic question I'd like to ask you this morning as we get into our text, and it's this one. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? Some of you would say, well, he's the Son of God, he's the Prince of Peace, he's the Lord, he's the Ruler, he's the Savior of the world. And in all of those would be correct. But the question is, who is Jesus to you? Not just who is he, but who is he to you? And that's a really important question. Because the reality is every single one of us are going to have to answer that question one day. The book of Philippians chapter 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That means that every human being will one day acknowledge the lordship, the reign, the rule, the person of who Jesus is. But the problem on that day is that there will be two kinds of people. Those who know him as Savior and Lord and those who know him as judge. See, there's basically two kinds of people in life. Those who know Jesus and love him and those who reject him and therefore fear him. He's Savior to one group and he's judge to another. One group will be saved from eternal punishment by his sacrifice on the cross and the other group will experience eternal separation in hell because of their sinful rebellion. And that is why the question, who is Jesus, is eternally important. Because at the end of the day, all of us in this room are in one of two camps. We relate to Jesus either as Savior or we relate to him as judge. There is no other position. The title of my message today is a question. It is afraid of Jesus. And I'd like to suggest to you that we don't often think of being afraid of Jesus. But really, for many people, being afraid of Jesus would really be a better description of how you relate to him. Because in the Bible, we find people who frequently, as they encounter Jesus, are afraid of him, and rightly so. But we don't like to think of Jesus this way. No, no, no. We, we prefer a soft, gentle, um, soft, kind, comforting image of Jesus. The, the kind of Jesus that you'd find in a children's Bible or an illustration. Almost Barney-like or Mr. Rogers-like in his demeanor. Won't you be my child? That's, who you, that's how you see him. He's just this comforting Savior. And, and that's true. That Jesus is meek and mild and comforting, but that picture is not complete. In fact, I would tell you, Jesus is not safe. He's not. One of my favorite quotes from 
C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that made its way into the movie, regarding Aslan, the Christ-like lion, the end of the movie, it says, regarding Aslan, he is not safe, but he is good. We get a clear taste of this, this fearful, not safe Jesus in our text today, Matthew 8, 28 through 9, 8. What's remarkable about this passage is that Jesus does a lot of good in the passage. He casts out the demons from two men. He heals a paralytic. And yet what's just amazing about this passage is the word afraid is used multiple times. When the, when the demons are exercised from these men, the, the city becomes afraid of him and they ask him to leave. And after he heals the paralytic and he goes home, the, the crowd comes and it says that they're afraid and they glorified God. And it's just striking to me that people who encounter Jesus often had a sense of fear or this foreboding sense of divine power that was in their midst. And this morning, I want us to see why are certain people afraid of Jesus? Why is Jesus not safe? Why is he fearful to certain people? Bottom line of what I'm going to tell you this morning is this. If you don't know Jesus, you have reason to be afraid. And it is an act of love and an act of kindness, frankly, that I tell you this before you stand before him and you have no ability, no option, but to simply be judged. If you don't know Jesus, you have reason to be afraid. So why are people afraid of Jesus? I want to give you three reasons from this text. The first one is this. People are afraid of Jesus because he exposes what is evil. We're in the middle of a study, if you've joined us for the first time or listening online for the first time, we're in the middle of a study of Matthew 8 through 10, which is all about the authority and power of Jesus. Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him. And and last week we saw the calming of the storm, and we left the text in chapter 8 and verse 27 where his disciples, after the calming of the storm, said, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? In other words, what kind of guy is this that can be sleeping one moment, stand up in the boat and say, peace be still, and the whole created order obeys his voice? We've seen him already heal a leper. We've seen him heal a centurion servant, a a woman who was cured instantly. And now we see two additional miracles that are filled with power and also create fear in the hearts of certain people. Verse 28 tells us that Jesus crossed again the Sea of Galilee into an area called Gadarenes. This was a Gentile area, not a place where very many Jews lived. And the reason we know that is from verse 30, that there were a herd of pigs being kept in this region. Well, a pig was an unclean animal to a Jew, so you didn't, you weren't a pig herder if you were a, if you're a Jewish person. So this is an area, a Gentile region. This is the area when it talks about Jesus in the beginning of the book of Matthew, that upon the Gentiles a light has shone. This is the region that the light is shining with brightness because of the darkness there. In verse 28 we find that Jesus comes into contact with two demon-possessed men. Look at verse 28. When he came to the other side to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. So there was this road in this region 
probably had some nicknames. Kids probably talked about it. Don't go down that road. There's scary men on that road. And these two men lived in the tombs, and they were terrorizing the people on that way. They were crazy. They were possessed. They were Tasmanian devil-like in their demeanor. They they, they scared people, and they were uncontrollable. In fact, um, Mark gives us some color on this in chapter 5. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and you'll see some additional information that he gives us on the character, the quality, and the dynamic, really the uncontrollableness of these men. Mark chapter 5 and verse 3. Now, Mark and Luke only describe one man. Matthew describes two. It may have been that they just zero in on one, who maybe was the leader or the outspoken one of the two. We don't exactly know why, but Mark talks about only one demon-possessed man. So it's the same person, but notice the description. Verse 3. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. So nobody could contain this guy. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and crying out and bruising himself with stones. So, I mean, this is like freaky stuff here. There's this area where these two guys lived and nobody went down this way because you could hear the crying and the the terrorizing of the people and he was also abusing himself. I mean, this guy was in big trouble. Go back to Matthew chapter 8. When the demon-possessed men meet Jesus, they treat him with hostility. Notice what it says. And behold, verse 29, they cried out. Now that word cried out doesn't mean just simply they said. It doesn't mean they just spoke something. The, The word means shriek. It means scream. It means the cry of someone who's afraid or scared. The same word is used of the disciples when they were on a boat and they looked out on the Sea of Galilee and they saw uh, Jesus was walking towards them on, on the water and they cried out and thought it was a ghost. So that moment wasn't like, hey, look, guys, there's a ghost. I mean, it wasn't like that, right? They, they, they saw something on the boat and they screamed like little girls. Ah! There's a ghost. I mean, they're screaming, they're crying out. And so when these two men show up to Jesus, they are not just talking to him, they are screaming at him with with an uncontrollable passion that is pent up within them. They, They shriek, they scream, and they say to him, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come to torment us before time? And that doesn't even do justice to what it must have been like. So what do you have to do with us And have you come to torment us before the time? The first statement is a fearful, panicked question. They ask Jesus, what are you doing here? You see, Jesus' presence invades their arena, and the mere presence of Jesus makes demon-possessed people uncomfortable. Because Jesus is going to expose evil. You ever had that happen to you? Where somebody exposes you or you know you're about ready to get seriously busted and, and you know just the mere presence of someone means that you're in trouble? When I was thinking about this and the emotions that go along with this, I can only, I remember this moment in eighth grade when I'm seated on top of the bleachers in this eighth grade basketball game and I'm watching my friends play and I took a program and I, and I shredded up the program into a bunch of pieces and made it into confetti. 
And I was laughing and having a good time with my friends. And, you know, we're having a good time. And all of a sudden, I threw the confetti up in the air. And it was, like, so fun until I noticed in the doorway my eighth grade teacher was watching me. And there's that sense of totally busted, right? And I saw him. And I knew I didn't sleep well that night because I knew the next morning, sure enough, homeroom. And uh, he got up and said, Boys and girls, we had an incident at the 8th grade basketball last evening. And I was like, oh, no. I could feel like the room tipping. A judgment is coming. You know, it was like, what do you have to do with me, Mr. Bosch? I mean, it was like, it was like, I could feel the guilt, the weight, just by, just by being in a position, persons, uh, in the presence of someone of authority. The second comment gives us a hint as to why they're screaming at him. What's crazy here is the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. They say to him, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? And then they ask him if he's come to judge them before the time. Apparently they know that there's coming a day when Jesus will hold them accountable. I mean, just think of this. The demons know. The demons that listen to this very message know that their doom is sure. And even though, and I described this to my children about the, the wickedness of the devil, even though he and all of his hosts know that their doom is sure, they still want to take as many people captive from the domain of God as possible. Because they hate God so much that they want to take as many of his followers with them, even though they know their destruction and their judgment is certain. What they're worried about is that his presence means that they're going to be judged immediately, and therefore they're afraid. So why are these men, these demon-possessed men, afraid? Here's why. They're afraid because the presence of Jesus is about to expose their evil. If you read Mark and Luke's account of the same story, Jesus actually talks to the man and asks him what is his name. He's talking through him to the de- demons that were inside of him. And the answer in a scary name is legion. For we are many. The word legion means about 3,000. Imagine. No wonder this man had supernatural strength and terrorized the people in a stunning way. The point of this encounter, though, is the mere presence of Jesus threatens their control over this man. You see, this is what Jesus does. His presence threatens evil men or evil deeds. This is what the gospel does. This is what the church does. This is what the Bible does. This is what the truth of the word of God does. It exposes the reality of who we are. It exposes the reality of evil. It's that the Bible compassionately but clearly tells us that we are sinners who have offended a holy God. This is what Jesus and the Bible consistently do. It is to expose the darkness. Look at John chapter 3 verse 19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Read it. 
out loud, because their deeds were evil. Next verse, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. Here's why. Read it aloud with me. Lest his deeds should be exposed. So question, why does the darkness hate the light? Why do evil people hate the truth? Why do sinful people not want to hear the reality of what the Bible says? The reason is, is because their deeds are evil and they don't want to be exposed. They don't want to come to the light, so they hate the light. They hate the light. They don't want to be exposed. I mean, I've had this experience on both ends of the perspective. Having things in my life that I know I need to deal with. I'm hanging around a righteous person and I just don't like being around him because he makes me feel guilty. And I've had the other extreme where I'm being introduced to somebody and everything's going good, having a great conversation until they ask me the question. So what do you do for a living? And then here it comes. So, well, I'm actually a pastor of a church. Oh. A nice visit with you. And then they walk away. And sometimes I want to go, what are you hiding? What are you hiding? But that doesn't usually engender kind responses. So, Being exposed is not a very fun experience, and so people kind of resist it. Last evening, our children, along with some of their friends, gathered a fair amount of candy from our neighbors. And we weighed it afterwards, just to see. I mean, I couldn't believe. They had, like, um, pillowcases, a quarter full. I mean, they were I mean, they're like, look at this, Dad! And they put it all over the, the kid. I said, let's weigh that. So we weighed it. Let's just weigh it. So they went upstairs, they came downstairs. How much did yours weigh? Nine pounds. Eight pounds. Eight pounds. Eight pounds. And then someone said, mine was 14. Now just think about that for a moment. Just think. All these boys went to the same houses. But you got one with 14 and four with eight. Suddenly someone who was with us said, wait a minute. How did you get 14 pounds and you get eight pounds? And they're like, yeah. How did you get 14 pounds? And they're like, we know. Those empty buckets of candy. You took three or four handfuls, didn't you? And the kid was like, um... And we knew he was busted right there, right? Busted. So I, I took his four pounds and said, it's mine. So that's what I did. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. We, we hate the light because we hate exposure. Listen to Second Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Why? In their case, listen to this, it's really important. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are two kinds of people here this morning. There are blind people and there are seeing people. And and the tragic irony is there's some of you here this morning, you are literally blind by the devil. He doesn't want you to see. And what you're hearing this morning is the reality of the truth of when the word of God comes and the blinders start to lift and God by his spirit lifts those blinders. It is that there's a spiritual war going on for your soul. That's why Paul said, for we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there is a battle, men and women, between light and darkness. 
And Satan's strategy is to keep people blind to the truth. Listen to me. He doesn't want you to know that you're a sinner. He doesn't want you to think about eternity. He doesn't want you looking carefully at your life. He wants you addicted. He wants you aimless. He wants you hopeless and thinking you're happy. That's what he wants. He wants you full of shame and yet full of self-confidence. He wants you loaded with guilt but able to justify it because everybody else you know who's a worse sinner than you are. He wants, he wants you to strut your way to hell. He doesn't want Jesus telling you what you're really like. He doesn't want the truth of the gospel shining on who you really are. And some people are afraid of Jesus because he exposes who they are. They're miserable and they're afraid that Jesus will expose them. And here's the problem. You can't come to Jesus until you are exposed. Until you say, guilty, vile, and wretched, me. But some people are afraid of him because of that exposure. And it is a miracle of God's grace when he changes your heart from saying no exposure to greatest sinner of all, right here, right here. And when he does that, that is the miracle of his opening your eyes to the reality of what the gospel is all about. The second thing that he does is he creates costly consequences. Look at verse 31. The scene shifts now from the demons to the pigs and the community. In verse 31, the demons beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs. Demons begged him, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Apparently, they long to possess anything. If you want to look at a chilling passage, I have it in the footnote in my manuscript. Matthew 12, 43 to 45, we won't look at it, but read it when you go home. Just this sense that these, these demons want to possess something and they're relentless in their desire. And, and I, when I was studying this, it just reminded me, you know, demon possession is real. You know that? How many of you um, ever read the book by Frank Peretti, um, This Present Darkness? Move your hands. Okay. So in high school, that book was when that book kind of came out. That kind of dates me and probably you as well. So, um, but that book came out and it was it was fairly controversial. And and there were things that I liked about the book. It helped to really kind of awaken my mind to some things, but also things I didn't like, like the fact that I walked outside. I'm like looking for demons under bushes and things like that. You know, it's like whoa, whoa, whoa. And someone would be negative. I'd be like, ah, you're even possessed, you know. And uh, it was just a little over the top. And there's some folks who get kind of over the top with demon stuff. When I was in uh, youth ministry, my early days, we um, another church that was an internet. We took our, our students. I don't know why. It wasn't my idea. We went to a Carmen concert. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you listen to Carmen because that would be a little exposing. Oh, someone, cause you didn't see that, but some kid put their hand up. I was like, no, 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 tell. So, um, uh, in the context of that concert, he, you know, he was all into the demon of this and the demon of that and the demon of that. And it's a little over the top. But you know what? I think it's a little helpful for us to, to remember that we're in a spiritual battle. And maybe we've tilted a little bit too Western in our thinking. Maybe we're a little bit too naive in how we look at the world. Because 
you know, the enemy wants people blind, addicted, and happy. And, and isn't it possible that there's more to sin and more to the vehicles of sin than meet the eye? I mean, I really believe, and this is just where I'm coming from, but I believe that there are spiritual forces in play that are attempting to advance and promote things that capture people's souls, like pornography and abortion, substance abuse, evolution, and and any number of other issues. Those things that that, that vaunt themselves up against God, I think there are spiritual forces, because the enemy knows that if he can get people hooked on these things, he's got them, and got them over the long haul. I believe that there are people who are knowingly and unknowingly powered by evil forces to do what they do. And I also believe that there are sections of our city that are practically under the oppressive control of the enemy. And just so you know, they're not all in downtown Indianapolis. I think the enemy is alive and well outside of 465 as much as he is inside 465. The gods are different, but the issue and control is the same. And I think there are spiritual, supernatural conflict that is in play. And I just from today, I want you to see the world a little differently, or maybe pray a little more desperately, or maybe just kind of wake up to the reality of the fact that we're in a war, and we need to be armed by the Word of God. Jesus, I love this, in verse 32, gives a one-word command. There are times when my heart grows weary of all of the evil that I see and feel. And sometimes, honestly, I think, you know what? We're losing. feels like we're losing. You ever felt like that? feel like you're losing it with your kids, losing it in the environments. And I love this. Jesus, with one word, says, go. That's how you talk to a dog. Go. And Jesus, with one word, says, go. And those demons, I love the fact that my Savior says one word and 3,000 demons go, okay, and they go. I love the fact that Martin Luther, in his wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, says, one little word shall fell him. Jesus says, go. And the demons rush out of these men. They took control of the pigs. They caused them to run into the sea and to their death. Can you imagine the chaos of this scene? Well, the effect was that the herdsmen ran into the city to tell anyone who would listen. I mean, you can imagine. 3,000 pigs, they were possessed. They all ran into the ocean and they drowned. And all the people from the city came out to see what was going on. Luke chapter 8 gives us a picture of what happens next. Look at what it says. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, I love this picture, and they found the man whom the demons, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I love that. And they were afraid. <laughs> because they couldn't bind him, they couldn't control him, and Jesus was able to take this man and control him. And those who had seen it, verse 36, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they were like, look at this demon-possessed man, he's healed. And, and, and the pigs went into the, into, the, into the ocean, and the people were like, yeah, that's great. Hey, can you like leave, Jesus? We're like not comfortable with this. 
This is a little outside of our box, this change of this man and these consequences thing. It's just a little too much. So would you kind of like go to Capernaum? They're calling, hey, Jesus, come on, let's go. Why don't you go over there to them? Because we're like not really wanting you here anymore. This is a little uncomfortable. D.A. Carson says this about them. They preferred pigs to persons, swine to Savior. Instead of marveling that the man had been delivered, instead of rejoicing at the presence of divine power, they just wanted him to leave. How often I've seen this happen. Seen people afraid because Jesus calls them to repent of their sins. Seeing Jesus afraid because following him requires costly, painful decisions. Or because, because knowing now what they know, they learn the truth, it, it really makes them uncomfortable because they would rather have almost not known. And then there's a battle in their hearts between the consequences of following Jesus and what they want to do. For example, a saved single young man who knows that he shouldn't be dating an unsaved young lady, but he does it anyways. Like, whatever, just go on to Capernaum. A young woman who wants to fill the hole in her heart so badly that she latches on to anything male because she has an idol and she knows it, but she's really lonely. A married couple who refuses to deal honestly with each other's sins because it's just easier not to talk about them. Or parents who don't ask their kids hard personal questions because they don't want to know the answers. People who move from church to church to church to church because they get in and then some kind of truth hits them and before they know it, they're like, you know what, let's just get out of here. And the reason that they give is a smokescreen for the real issue and that is that they can't handle the truth of what really they're being dealt with. And what happens here is Jesus challenges the status quo. He creates costly consequences. And because of that, there are some people who are afraid. That city should have been rejoicing over what had happened, but they couldn't get past the pigs. It was just easier to ask him to leave. The third reason that people are afraid of Jesus is because he creates an encounter with power. Now the scene here shifts again. Chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. It's the city of Capernaum. Jesus lived a number of places, and Capernaum was one of them. And chapter 9, the scene shifts here. It tells us that some people brought him a paralyzed man who was lying on a bed. Verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So Mark chapter 2, if you were to look at that particular text, tells us that that Jesus was in, it says, his own house. So there's a couple things interesting about this story. Jesus was either in his own house or he was in the house of Peter. And these friends came and because of the the, the press of the crowd listening to Jesus' teaching, they, they couldn't get in to hear him. And so what they ended up doing is opening up a hole in the roof. Now, the hole in the roof, this is like one of those classic um, children's stories. You know, so the guys, they pull back the thatch of the roof and they let the guy down with ropes or something. Well, the problem is that there wasn't any kind of thatched roofs. These roofs were made of clay. 
And, and so they had, they had beams and stuff that they, they kind of wove together and then they spread a, a top covering of clay to keep the water out. So in order to make a hole in this house, it was a pretty big deal. Okay? So imagine Jesus is talking and all of a sudden dust comes down, right? He's looking up, backing away, and before you know it, there's like a hole. And then they're making it bigger and bigger and bigger. And these guys were working hard to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. Right? They probably thought, if we can just get him to Jesus, there's hope for him. In verse 2, Jesus says something extraordinary to him. He says to him, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's interesting for two reasons. The first is because the healing was based on the friend's faith, not his, as you'll see later. So Jesus addresses the young man. He doesn't even even speak. Jesus addresses him based upon the, the faith of his friends. And the second thing that's interesting to me is that this man is... The first thing he hears from Jesus is, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Let me just give you a little sidebar here a second. And and this is a little, um, I don't say controversial, but a little sticky. How about that? And, And that is that it seems as though Jesus, before dealing with his illness, first deals with his sin as though there was a connection between his sin and his illness. Now, not all people are sick because of their sin. John 9 clearly tells us that. But there's a balance in the Bible when it comes to this that I I think we would do just good for a minute to think about. And it's this. Three things I want you just to, to note here. It's a little sidebar, but I think it's important. The first is this. Isaiah 54, 5, Revelation 4, 4 tell us that the ultimate root of all sickness is sin. Meaning, before sin was in the world, there was no sickness. There was no illness. There was, there was no um, physical maladies. And the longing of our heart is for the day when Jesus comes. Listen to this. When Jesus comes and we live on the new heaven and new earth, guess what? No more H1N1. <laughs> no more elbow bumps in church. We can hug each other. We can give each other high fives. We can lick our hands after talking to each other. We can do whatever we want. We're all good. There's no more. No more sickness. And and there is this clear sense that we're longing for the day when Jesus comes and all of the consequences for sin will be gone. When I was thinking about this, this changes even how I view when I get sick. You know that even, even the flu, it's a reminder that we live in a fallen world. It's a reminder that we live in a sin-stricken world. And we long for the day when all of this will be over. The second thing is that the Bible tells us that some sickness is caused by sin. John chapter 5, verses 3 to 15, talks about calling the elders to pray. And if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. So there's a connection in a disciplined sense between some sickness and some sin. And then finally, number 3 from John chapter 9, is that some sickness is not caused by sin. So why do I share all of this with you? I share it with you because I think our present culture rarely even considers that sickness could be because of some specific sin. Could be. Not always is, but could be. And I rarely find people who take time to evaluate, is this because of something specific that I need to repent of? To those of you who are presently sick and you'd say, how would I know? Here's what I would tell you. I don't think that it helps your soul or is part of God's plan for you not to know. 
And therefore, I think that when sickness is directly caused by sin, you know. You know. It's like this is, I know. I don't want to throw you into some kind of weird, misplaced guilt thing where you're trying to figure it out. I would tell you, if there's no thing that you can think of, then it's a John 9 case. But if it's because of something that you know you've been busted on, you know. And it also is a call for us to be reminded that we ought to pray all the time, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. When the flu comes and you're laying in bed and you're all achy and miserable, you ought to lay in bed and say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, now tell your family before you pray that too loud. That's to think, oh, he's dying. He's dying, right? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Don't call me. Get in here quick. He's going to die. He's calling for Jesus. So it just means that this longing of your heart to say, Lord, I long for this pain of life to be over. So apparently the scribes were listening back to our story, to the teaching of Jesus, and they were not pleased that Jesus granted this man's forgiveness. They they said, surely this is blasphemy in verse 4. And then Jesus says this, verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Here's what I think is going on. I think that the scribes are thinking, Well, he can't raise him from the dead, so he says your sins are forgiven. Like, that's really hard to say that. And he's blaspheming, and he knows, Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows that they're thinking, oh, he can't really raise him up off of his bed. So he offers him some cheesy religious conferment over top of his sinfulness. And that's why Jesus says this to them. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Now, the response of the crowd is what is really interesting. Verse 8, when the crowds saw it, the text says, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They were afraid and they glorified God. They were afraid and they glorified God. That's an interesting couple of words put together there. In fact, if you were to look at other translations, here's how they render it. New American Standard, they were awestruck and glorified God. NIV, they were filled with awe and they praised God. New King James, they marveled and they glorified God. New Living Translation, they were swept with fear and they praised God. Why so many differences? Here's why. Because we don't have a single word in English to capture this moment. We don't have words that capture both this awe-inspiring sense of God is here We don't have this sense, the the words, the language that that fully capture this, the reality of, oh my word, there is something powerful here. And it's both fearful and joyful. For us, those are two extreme emotions. And Jesus and the Bible and the gospel and the cross takes and puts those two together. In fact, the closest that I can come to is this little wordplay. And it's this. For me, it's frightening joy. Frightening joy. And, and I think to describe the emotions, when I try and describe this to people, I describe it in this way. We talk about the roller coaster of emotions, don't we? And why do we talk about a roller coaster metaphor? Because you know what you feel on a roller coaster. It's frightening joy. 
It's, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. Oh, I didn't die. Oh my goodness, I'm going to die. Oh no, I didn't die. Oh my goodness. And you get off the, off the thing, you're like, I am so glad that's done. And your kid's like, let's do it again, Dad. Let's do it again. You're like, oh my goodness, no, 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 no. So frightening joy is that sense. Uh, when we were in Florida a number of years ago, I, I watched um, someone get up on one of those human slingshots. You ever seen those? So you probably have done those, you crazy people. And what they did is they, they strapped like three people together in a family, put them up on this big rubber band way, way up top. And we were eating our lunch down at the bottom. And, and, and the, the swoop of the, of the slingshot was such that they came right over top of the building, which has some interesting implications if that band ever broke. But besides the point, they, as we were sitting there watching our, eating our lunch, we could watch them. And it was really interesting to see their response. As the thing let loose, they were screaming. I mean, like, oh, no. And then they hit the bottom, and they realized they were going to live. And they're like, woohoo! And then it's a really fun, frightening joy. It's like, oh, we're going to die. Oh, no, we didn't die. And that's the, that is the swing of emotion. And I think that is as close to the, the, the language, to the feeling of what's going on here. That sense of frightening joy, this sense of I am in awe with what has happened. The implications of it are huge. The, the meaning of it is so significant and deep in my life. It's the kind of fear that's different than what the demon-possessed man or the community felt earlier. This is a fear that comes from knowing that something beyond yourself, something otherworldly is going on. And you need to know that when I pray for our church and what happens in this very room, I pray for frightening joy. I pray that based upon 1 Corinthians 14. I dream of this happening, and it does on occasion. Paul says, if an unbeliever or outsider enters, Paul has this idea that he would come into the assembly and the result would be he would be convicted by all. He would be held or called to an account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You know what? The longing of my heart for our church is not that we're known for anything else other than God is here. The sense that people coming in from the outside would sense there's something here. Something Unique. A reverential fear, a a fearful respect, a, a coming to the realization of who Jesus is, who you are, and then realizing what He can do. This is the frightening joy of knowing who Jesus is and thanking Him that you see it now. So there's two kinds of people in the room. There are people who get the frightening joy thing and you understand the beautiful reality of how your life has been changed. You see and savor the beautiful reality of Jesus. And there are others of you that you, you, you'll find any way to get away from it. You'll, 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 you'll criticize everything you know that's religious. You'll find a way to get around this sermon today. You'll, you'll be negative about something else that you saw. You'll find an excuse. But the real issue is not the content or the message or what you're seeing. The real issue is Jesus makes you afraid. Because there's exposure. And what I long for you to know is the beautiful reality of who Jesus is so that when you see Him in all of His glory, your response will not be fear, it will be loving worship. Like what happens in the book of Revelation chapter 5, and they sang a new song. This is to Jesus. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard this around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing and honor. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. That is going to be a frighteningly joyful moment. As you see him in all of his beauty and know without his sacrifice you would be obliterated in his presence. The reason that heaven is bowing to him is because of the power of who he is. And this is the meaning of 1 John 4, 18, where it says, Perfect love casts out fear. Because you know you have been loved in a perfect way. So who is Jesus to you? Are you afraid of him because of exposure? Are you afraid of him because of consequences? Are you afraid of him because he brings you into a moment of divine encounter with power? The question is, do you know him? Because if you don't, the reality is you have reason to be afraid. But if you know him and you see him and savor him for all that he is, you fall on your knees and say to him, worthy is the lamb. And you are filled with joy because you know who he is, you know what his power is all about, and you are so grateful that he in your own lifetime opened your eyes and drew you to your himself, that you also have a story like everyone you've heard up here this morning, that my name is Mark Vrogup and God opened my heart and redeemed me in July of 1984. And my hope today is that you would have the exact same story. That you would know this Jesus and see him as he really is. Merciful Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are greater than any force of the wicked one. That you have power and authority. That you say one word like go and demons follow your command. Thank you that you have the power to redeem, the power to save, the power to open blind eyes. The power to keep running after those who run from you. And thank you that in your infinite mercy you do not give up on us. Lord, today I pray for some here today who are afraid of you because you expose, there's consequences. And because there's power here. And I pray that you'd graciously open their eyes and lovingly woo them to your heart today. And that today, this November 1st, could be a day where they run no longer. And instead say, I today receive Christ. Lord, for those of us who know you, oh, we ask you to give us a healthy respect and understanding of what it means to walk in newness of life, to be spiritual, to be godly. Give us a relentless desire to follow you with new joy, new hearts. And 
to be reminded that it was by your work of mercy that we can even know that you are our Lord. In just a moment, we're going to dismiss you. I'll pray and go on your way. But if you're here today and you need someone to talk with, if today was a, a moment where God is here for you, then we'll have some folks from our prayer team who would love just to be able to pray with you, some folks who can counsel you if need be, someone who can just help you to be loved on this Lord's Day. So they're here. Don't run another Sunday. So Jesus, we are grateful that you are our King, our Savior, our Lord, our Master. Thank you that we can know you, and thank you that perfect love casts out fear. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thanks for your word. In your name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. God bless you. Love you.